Well, hey, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, it's great to be with you. And today we get to continue a series that we started last weekend called Second. And before I get to the teaching, I actually need to answer a question that a very perceptive Keystone friend asked me this week whilst we were standing near one another during or at Costco. And the question went like this. Um, are all future series at Keystone going to be named after numbers? And it's actually a great question because um, if you've been around this fall, you know that the three last series have been called 25 in honor of Keystone's 25th anniversary, uh, seven in honor of the seven churches individually addressed uh, by Jesus in the letter we call Revelation, and now second. But the answer to the question is no. Um, sorry to disappoint you. Uh, we had a good thing going there for a bit. But uh, in fact, we're going to begin 2022 with a series called Next Steps, during which uh, we're going to offer you a whole bunch of steps to take your next step in your faith journey. So we're super excited about what's coming in the new year. Um, but also, uh, thank you to the person who asked the question. You have no idea how encouraging it is to, for me to know that someone is listening. <laughs> so that's good. Anyway, uh, as I mentioned last week, the series second is based on something that the authors of the Bible talk about over and over and over again. Namely, there was a lot more going on uh, that first Christmas than initially meets the eye because, well, when Jesus, when Jesus was born in that manger in Bethlehem, God was doing something that only he could do. Moreover, with the birth of his son, God was rewriting a few chapters in human history that had gone tragically wrong. And if you were with us last week, you already get a sense of what I'm talking about because we began this series by exploring how God sent Jesus to get right what Adam got wrong, as in Adam, the first human ever. So God sent Jesus to get right what Adam got wrong and that Jesus was, in a very real sense, a second Adam. And by the way, if you missed that talk, I would encourage you to catch up on our website. I can almost guarantee you, after hearing it, you'll never quite see Christmas the same way again. Okay, now with our time today, we get to explore how Jesus was born to be another second. Specifically, Jesus was born to be a second Joshua. And I know what some of you are thinking. Like, uh, who exactly was Joshua again, right? And, and that's a great question, and I promise we'll get to that soon. But for now, what I want to do is jump right in to a man named Matthew's account of something that happened nine months before the first Christmas. Here's what Matthew tells us early in his account of Jesus' life. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And I just want to notice a couple things before we move on. Uh, first, that Matthew begins his narrative about the life of Jesus by stating his airtight conviction that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And that may not mean much to you, but Messiah is a Hebrew word, which basically means anointed one. And so right from the start, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus was the one that Israel had been waiting for and longing for and crying out to God for, for generations. Now, he was the one who God had promised to send to make things right. And now the word Messiah translates into the Greek language, which is the language of our New Testament, as the, as the word Christ, a word you've heard before, which of course means that Jesus' last name wasn't Christ. And a few of you just, I ruined something, right? That was your whole life you were thinking, Jesus, like, what, wait, Jesus' parents weren't like Joseph and Mary Christ? No, that's not how that works. Okay, that's a great pastor joke. I've been waiting all week for that one. Whoo, killing it with the pastor jokes. All right, yeah, Christ was like a title. And so when we say Jesus Christ, what we're basically saying is Jesus was the Messiah. 
Okay, so the other thing I want to talk about, if we can put that last slide up again, Rob, of what we're talking about names is you should know that the name Jesus is also fascinating, especially with regards to our conversation for today. So hang with me. Uh, the name Jesus is actually a Latin transliteration of a Greek word that's derived from a Hebrew name. Yes, it took me a while to practice to say that right. The Hebrew name is Yeshuach, and I won't make you pronounce it, right? Yeshuach. And I didn't just sneeze. That really was Jesus' name, Yeshuach. And that's what his disciples would likely have called him. And this is pretty cool. If Yeshuach's name had been translated directly into English, it would have been Joshua. And, and which means, of course, that we've been mispronouncing Jesus' name for pretty much our whole lives, right? In fact, if you've ever wondered why God doesn't answer your prayers... It just might be that we've been mispronouncing the name of his son. He's up there going, who? I don't know who that is, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And I also don't think that we should rewrite all of our worship songs. I talked to Paul and the team about it, and they told me something. Because um, I was like, well, if that's his name, we should probably work on it. And they're like, no, because Yeshua is a three-syllable name. And I was like, yeah, I get that. And, and Paul said to me, you can't use three-syllable names in songs. And then he said, just, just think about Jesus loves me for a second. I mean, it would literally go like this. Yeshuach loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That would never work. And so, so we're going to stick with Jesus around here. So anyway, here's the thing. If you want to appreciate the significance of the Christmas story, you really need to consider the fact that God sent Jesus to be, in a sense, a second Joshua. And that would have meant something powerful to the first people who read Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. Uh, they would have been Jewish. Scholars tell us that Matthew's account was originally written to Jewish Christians. And every Jewish person in the first century knew the story of Joshua. Uh, you, you'll find it in the Old Testament in a book actually called Joshua. But Joshua was the warrior general who had led Israel into the land that God had promised their ancestor Abraham hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. And he had been the one who had been uh, led the charge as the people entered the land, uh, led the charge against the pagans who had inhabited the land, and, who, and basically Joshua set Israel on a path to independence and prosperity. So Joshua was a celebrated military leader. It's also worth noting that in the generations leading up to the birth of Jesus, the Jewish people would have been longing for another Joshua who would come and deliver them. Uh, this time from the systematized oppression they were experiencing at the hands of the Roman Empire. All that to say, like when Matthew began his account um, of Jesus' life by recording the details surrounding the birth of Joshua, the Messiah, he would have had people's undivided attention. So as Matthew goes on, he tells us the following. He said, his mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, in a generation preceding this moment, Mary would likely have been stoned to death by her people for getting pregnant outside of marriage to the Jewish people. It was that big a deal. But, but thankfully, by the time the first century rolled around, cooler heads had prevailed, and it was far more likely that Mary would simply be shamed publicly and then ostracized from her community as a result of her pregnancy, which isn't as bad as being stoned to death, but it still isn't good. Anyway, Matthew tells us that Mary was engaged but not yet married to a man named Joseph when she was found to be pregnant. And that, for Mary, would have been an incredibly emotionally complicated reality to communicate to her fiancé and her family and her community, to say the least. 
And that's before you consider the specifics of her situation. I mean, she had to tell people, including Joseph and her parents, that an angel had visited her to inform her that she was going to carry a baby who would have no biological father. In other words, she was going to carry God's baby. And, and as I imagine it, Mary's family, as well as Joseph, would have had some serious questions about her mental health in this moment. And that actually explains Joseph's initial response to the news. As he continues, Matthew records it for us. He says, because Joseph was faithful to the law, as in he wanted to honor the Old Testament law, the law God had given the people through Moses, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. It's like Joseph found himself caught between law and grace. I mean, the Jewish law did not look favorably on marriage to a woman who became pregnant outside of wedlock. But, but see, Joseph also cared deeply for Mary he knew her, he knew her character, he knew her heart, and he didn't want to subject her to the shame of a public dismissal. And, and, and so he wanted to show her grace, and he wanted to honor the law, and so he found another way forward. He decided to leave her quietly, and that really was his plan, until he too was visited by an angelic messenger. Matthew describes the encounter for us this way. He writes, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph, um, Mary is carrying God's baby. She's telling you the truth. And now before we go any farther, I need to note something that, that's really important to understand, especially if you tend to be skeptical when it comes to the supernatural. So for those of you skeptics in the house, let me, and online, hello. You know, it, uh, this is the observation. It goes like this. Nobody was expecting a virgin birth. In the days leading up to the birth of Jesus, all of the longing and the messianic expectation, nobody was expecting a virgin birth. I mean, there is a verse in the writings of an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah from hundreds of years earlier that Matthew actually quotes. And that verse from the prophet reads uh, this way, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Uh, but, but see, the Hebrew word that's translated virgin here can just as easily be translated young lady or maiden or young girl. And those translations, honestly, would be a lot easier to justify. Uh, moreover, everybody in the first century knew that the Messiah would come from the line of David. David was Israel's great king. And so they would have expected that this Messiah would have an earthly father. So like I said, nobody in the first century was expecting the Messiah to be the product of a virgin birth. Virgin births were something that happened in Greek mythology, not in Judaism. And now here's why I think that's so interesting. The virgin birth actually makes Matthew's account harder to believe for the skeptics, and that's actually why I'm convinced that that's what happened, that it actually happened. I mean, there's no way uh, that Matthew would have manufactured a detail that would so complicate his storyline. So the only reasonable reason that Matthew tells us that Jesus didn't have a biological father is that Jesus didn't have a biological father, okay? For the skeptics, that's just something to talk about at Panera after church. There we go, right? So yeah, anyway, as he continues, uh, his account, Matthew records what the angel said next to Joseph, and it went like this. He said, Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people. And, and I just want to pause there for a second and put ourselves in Joseph's emotional state. Just imagine what Joseph must have been feeling at this moment. Not only relief that Mary was telling the truth, but, but something like, no way. Mary 
My Mary is going to give birth to the Messiah, and, and, and he's going to be named after Israel's, one of Israel's greatest warriors. I mean, this is incredible. And I just imagine this conversation that Joseph might have had, like say, oh, Mr. Angel, you don't even need to keep talking. He's going to save his people from, I, need, I know what comes next, because we're supposed to call him Joshua, because for hundreds of years, Israel has been oppressed by a series of foreign nations, like the, the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans. And it's like, it's finally time for us to be free. We've been crying out to God forever for this. I mean, I know exactly what the Messiah is going to save us from. I know exactly what a second Joshua is going to do. He's going to do what the first Joshua did. He'll drive out the pagan people so that Israel can then live without fear in her land and control her destiny. I mean, I've been told that story, the story of Joshua since I was a kid. And I've been longing for the Messiah since I was since I, could, since I could remember. And I can't believe my son is going to be the one. I mean, Mr. Angel, you must know this, but we'd almost given up hope. I mean, God's promise to Abraham, our ancestor, was like, it was like 2,000 years ago. So we really wondered if God had abandoned us, if God cared about us, if God had forgotten about us. But now, after all this time, he's sending the Messiah. He's sending a second Joshua, a mighty warrior to lead us in battle and make things right. So Mr. Angel, sir, you can stop talking. I already know what you're going to say next. But here's the thing. If you're familiar with the story, and most of us are, you already know that's not what the angel says next. In fact, as Matthew's account continues, he tells us that the angel said, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And as I imagine it, uh, Joseph would have wanted to slowly raise his hand and ask for some clarification. And he'd say something like, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Mr. Angel. Uh, I mean, I don't know how this works, but no disrespect. Um, us being saved from our sins, not exactly a felt need. Can I say that? <laughs> right? I mean, we do need saving, let's be, let's be clear, but, but like, how do I put this? If you were to gather like a thousand Jewish people um, and take like a survey and say, hey, what do you guys need to be saved from? Uh, not one of them would say their sins. So obviously, Mr. Angel, you are unfamiliar with Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay? Yeah. I'm not sure angels go to high school, and so let me explain it to you. Uh, I, have, I brought a picture. Okay. F first... We humans need our physiological needs met. Things like food and water and air. That's like a baseline. If we don't have those things, that's all we think about, right? But once that's set, then we need safety. We need to know that it's okay to climb in bed at night, close our eyes, and not worry about what might happen while we're sleeping. And then as you kind of move up the pyramid, we, we need things like love and belonging. And then we need self-esteem. And then finally, like at the top, if you know you've arrived, it's like when you're talking about self-actualization, like how do I step into my purpose in the world? Like that's, that's kind of how this goes. But Mr. Angel, as you have undoubtedly noticed, um, <clears throat> salvation from sin does not make the list. Plus, like we're Jewish people and we already have a sophisticated system to deal with sin. Uh, God gave it to us through Moses years ago. It, it's the temple in Jerusalem, right? It's that massive structure up on the hill, 90 miles south of here. It's pretty impressive. I mean, you really can't, can't miss it. And we Jews can go to the temple like anytime we want to be saved from our sins, whatever the sins are. God even gave us like a handbook telling us what to do 
if we had a specific sin that we needed to deal with. So no offense, but we don't really need anyone to save us from our sins. But I'll tell you what we do need to be saved from. And actually, I'll tell you who does need to be saved from their sins. Rome needs to be saved from their sins. I mean, they are absolutely awful to us. They oppress us and they tax us. Some of our people have lost their ancestral land that was held for generations because of the Romans. They are evil. They are the bad guys. And we need to be saved from them. But see, Rome is powerful like the pagan armies that Joshua drove out were powerful. And so we need a Messiah with a sword. We need a second Joshua who will act like the first Joshua. Now that's what Joseph would have been thinking. But that's not how Joseph responded to the angel and I thought a lot about this this week, and, and I thought, well, Joseph, I know that's what would have been going on inside of his head, so why wouldn't he have verbalized that to an angel? And then it hit me, like late last night, I was running through the talk, and it hit me, and here's, here's why. And you can write this down, this is really good for later. When an angel of the Lord talks to you, you don't talk back, <laughs> right? Shiny, brilliant, glory of God, you just listen and nod. And that's what I think Joseph did and then he woke up and he did exactly what the angel had told him to do. In fact, Matthew tells us when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel had commanded him to do and took Mary home as his wife. All right, now with the, the time that remains, I need to turn a corner in the talk and I want to ask you a question. Because I think there's something here for all of us, especially if you spent any time at all as a follower of Jesus. And, and it goes like, it's a question, it goes like this. Do you know why so many of us aren't particularly moved when we hear that God sent Jesus to save us from our sins? I mean, maybe early in our faith we had a moment uh, where, where it was like we were overwhelmed with gratitude and maybe you even prayed a prayer to sort of receive the gift of salvation. But when you think about it, Christmas story comes around and you're just kind of running through it, maybe with your kids, maybe with your grandkids, like Jesus came to save us from our sins. And you're just like, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's a really awesome thing, but it doesn't really move me. It's kind of like it didn't really move Joseph so much the night he first heard the news. And I, and I thought a lot about this this week, and I think I know why. I, I, think, I think it's because when someone tells us that Jesus was sent by God to save us from our sins— when that's what we, what's what is said to us, what we actually hear is that Jesus was sent by God to save us from the penalty of our sins. And with that understanding, the message of Christmas is sort of reduced to forgiveness. It's like sin management, namely that God sent Jesus to forgive all the things that we've done in the past that need to be, we need to be forgiven for and all the things that we will do in the future that we would otherwise leave us in debt to God because sin always creates debt with God. And so Jesus comes to forgive our sins. And in fact, it's even possible that like, if you were honest, your entire religious experience could be summarized, uh, you know, kind of with, with, with two phrases, like nobody is perfect, but God forgives. And this is good news, right? Nobody's perfect, but God forgives. I'm not perfect. So God forgives me, I mess up, and God forgives me, and then I mess up, and God forgives me again. And then we just kind of do that on repeat until I exit this life and enter the next life. And, and while that's certainly true, the good news is that the message of Christmas 
is way bigger. It's actually way more wonderful than that. Because I would argue that, that it doesn't just offer us hope for our forgiveness of sins on the other side. It actually offers us something in this life right here and right now. And, I, and I'll put it like this. God didn't only send Jesus to deliver us from the penalty of sin. He came to lead us down a path that can deliver us from the power of sin in our lives. Like right now, today, he wants to do something with our relationship with sin in this life. Certainly to forgive us as far as it stands with God, but he wants to do something right here and right now. He wants to teach us a new and a better way to be a human, and he wants to lead us away from sin in our lives, and he actually wants to empower us to be free from sin in our lives. In other words, Jesus came in the spirit and in the power of Joshua, the warrior, to free us and to lead us into the potential of being free from the bondage of sin. And, and Jesus actually alluded to this repeatedly during his time on earth. I, I was you know, hard-pressed to find my favorite example, so I, I just picked one. Now, there was one morning where uh, Jesus was teaching in the temple courts in Jerusalem, that massive structure we just had the picture up, uh, when a group of religious leaders, uh, Pharisees, they hauled a woman in front of Jesus who'd been caught in the act of adultery the night before, and they asked him, like, should we stone her for her sins? And Moses had told them that if someone's caught in adultery, that that's what you do with them. And in response, like Jesus looks at them and he says, oh, should you stone her for her sins? Sure. But there's an asterisk. It goes like this. Only those among you who are without sin are qualified to throw the first stone. And I, there aren't a lot of crickets in Jerusalem, but I just imagine like, cricket, cricket, right? As they kind of absorbed Jesus' words. So Jesus is like, you know, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with Moses, but you need to understand that only you who are without sin are qualified to judge someone in their sin. And so like an awkward silence descended on the crowd. And eventually, Jesus tells us, or Matthew tells us in his account that one by one, starting with the oldest, like the people who had lived the longest, who were most in touch with the fact that they hadn't been perfect, starting with the oldest, they like walk off the temple courts until it's just this woman in front of Jesus and she's looking down and he's looking at her and he kneels down and speaks to her and he says basically, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all gone. And he says, well, then I forgive you. I forgive you as well. I don't condemn you either. And that's great news, but that's not all Jesus says. After he says that, he looks at her with tears in his eyes and he says, go now and leave your life of sin. Like, you need to make some changes because sin is harming you and it's harming your community. Ultimately, it's harming the world. It's breaking peace on all sorts of axes and you need to go and leave your life of sin. And because, and I kind of want to raise my hand and go, wait, wait, Jesus, um, is that possible? Is it possible for us flawed human beings to actually move away from sin? Is it possible for us to say no to sin? Because if it's true, then that's something way bigger than forgiveness. I mean, forgiveness gets me back to zero with God. I'm at peace with God and, and, and praise Jesus for that. But, but, 
But see, in these, in these conversations with people, like Jesus seems to be offering more than that because he is offering more than that. He actually wants to lead us through a process that can free us from the power of sin in our lives. And given that reality, it makes sense that God instructed Joseph to name the Messiah Joshua. Because Joshua came to deliver people not simply from something, but to bring them into something. And in the case of Jesus, he wants to bring us into freedom from sin in this life. He wants to do way more than forgive us for our sins he wants to lead us by his spirit to actually die to sin. And you see that in those letters that make up the New Testament. Like Jesus wants us to, to die to sin and to come alive to him. And, and so to be clear, like he says, he's not gonna do it without our participation. It's a, it's a partnership. And we can't do it without him, but God sent him, sent Jesus to show us and to invite us and then by his spirit to empower us to change beyond our natural abilities to modify our behaviors. He wants to partner with us to change us from the inside out. And he wants to lead us in battle with the sin in our lives that is stealing life from our life. And again, that's why God sent Jesus as a second Joshua. I'm telling you, when that truth gets from your mind to your heart, you, it changes everything, including the way you experience the Christmas season. Because with this understanding, it's easy to see that Christmas was way more, about way more than a baby in a manger. It was nothing less than the invasion of a loving God into a world of people who needed more than anything else to be rescued from an impossible situation and led into freedom. And that thought should absolutely fill us with wonder. All right, now, um, before I let you go, uh, we have a special treat. We're going to listen to a song together. And so I'd like to invite the band to join me on the stage. It's one of my favorite songs of the Christmas season, and it's not one of those songs we always hear at the Christmas season, but it came out a few years back. It's called Light of the World, and it's absolutely beautiful. It, it celebrates the reality that God sent Jesus into a world that is so often dark to bring us hope hope of forgiveness so that we don't have to fear the punishment on the other side of this life and the hope of freedom from the sin that is slowly destroying our lives and our relationships and our potential right now. So let's listen to this song together and then I'll close our time in prayer.
just stand and I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, moments like this uh, just fill us with wonder at the beauty and the majesty and the magnitude of your plan through your Son to rescue all that was lost and to restore all of creation to a relationship with you. I pray for those of us who are feeling the weight of sin this morning. We walked in here looking for hope, looking to be reminded that you're not done with us. And I pray that something in this ancient account would communicate that truth. That whoever we are and whatever we've done, you desire us to make a fresh start and to move away from sin and to find freedom in this life as well as the hope of eternity with you. And so we celebrate Jesus the Messiah who came for us when we were most unworthy because of your love for us. So we thank you, we bless you, we honor you. In his name, everyone said, amen. Friends, before you leave, um, if you're in need of prayer, we have a few people right up front who would love to meet you and pray over you. Uh, and for the rest of you, grace and peace. We'll see you back next week for part three of Second. I'm your grace, Lord.